Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, and welcome to Everything is Fine, a podcast for women over 40. We are your hosts. I'm Kim France. And I'm Jim Romolini. And this week, Kim is on tour. So we're just going to answer a couple of listener questions. We're going to do a little mini episode just so that we have some kind of check in on this day. So we're going to answer some listener questions today, a little mini episode. And after we answer questions, I'm interviewing Beth Pickens to talk all about art and creativity in the new year. Kim, how are you doing? I'm great. Okay. (laughs) She knows I'm not great. (laughs) She's not great. She's not great. She's having a bad day. (laughs) Um, Okay. here's Here's a listener question. Anyone else noticed that a lot of things you like and bought for years have now been discontinued? Have you noticed this, Kim? I've noticed that, like, I, I, I feel like, I don't know that I've noticed that things have been discontinued. I just don't like the things that are continuing. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. You know enough. what I mean? Like, yes. I, I don't find there, I don't see an enormous, I don't find a lot of comfort in like, oh, that's exactly what I what I wanted. Well, I think that a lot of things have changed as I'm getting older. I'm like, wait, this used to be better than it is now. Formulas, definitely formulas have changed. Yeah. As you know, when small beauty companies, for instance, are purchased by larger beauty companies, they get access to all of these other, you know, cheaper chemicals and things like that. It can really change a beauty product. Totally. So I have noticed that and I haven't noticed the exact thing. I've just noticed that the things that I used to love are not as good as they used to be, which is again, an Andy Rooney moment. Okay. (laughs) Do you go to any professional events? And if so, what's your objective? Expanding your network, catching up with work acquaintances, something else? How do you make the most of them? I don't go to a lot. I used to go to many professional events. And I'd say that the reason was social, but at the same time, professional. You know, it it was like I've said before, working in publishing as we did for so long, the line between work and play was very thin. Yep. 
And you were, you know, frequently meeting somebody at a party who, you know, the next week would email you and say, are you interested in whatever? Yeah. I mean, I think that when I go to any sort of, if I go to anything that's like a work event, I'm, I'm not there to catch up with old acquaintances though. That's nice. I'm mainly there to be like a little bit transactional, like, you know, making sure that I'm, I'm seeing the right people. I'm reminding people that I exist. Um, I'm, I'm behaving in a little bit of a different way. You know, I'm not as loose. So I think that that's the difference, you know, like Mm -hmm. I would never, I would never have more than two drinks at like a a work event at this point, like ever. And I'm just there to sort of like, be like, hi, I'm here. I do these things. Remember, because how often in your life at this point, especially if you're a freelance person, are you getting to have those interactions yep, like yep. where you're reminding people that you exist, that you work, you know, that they can hire you to do things. Um, so that, that's, that's what I'm trying to get out of that is FaceTime with people. Um, in some ways it's, it's like the beginning of my career was, um, that I just want people to know that I, that I exist. Right. Um, Okay. White Lotus season two made me dream about Sicily. Did any movies or TV shows spur you to make travel plans? No. Okay. Okay. That's <laughs> okay. That's okay. Never did. That's okay. I don't know if this spurred me to make travel plans, but there is this great movie, uh, Two Days in Paris with Julie Delpy and Adam Goldberg. You know, also any sort of Julie Delpy movie, the, all this sort of beyond sunrise, beyond beyond midnight one, it made mm-hmm. me want to go to Greece for sure. Those are also, I'd love to watch that series again. The whole, um, not yeah. beyond. is that right? Beyond is beyond. What is that? After midnight. I don't know. It's after it's after before I'm just, sunrise before I'm just making up a whole, I'm making <laughs> up a whole thing beyond is not it. It's before sunrise, before midnight, before sunset. It's that, that series with Julie Delpy is amazing, but there is also a movie called two days in Paris, which is, which is really, really good. And everybody should watch it. Okay. Have either of you tried anything to get your eyelashes back? I have some stuff upstairs that I have not yet used because I get a little anxious about those products. Me too. I'm like afraid I'm going to go blind. Yep. I'm just a little anxious. I would use them on my eyebrows, but even my eyebrows, it just, it makes me a little nervous. Yeah. 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 I totally, totally hate that. Um, I not hate that. I'm scared of it. I have had lash extensions once. How were they? It was great, but I found you you know, it's like it, all it really does is make it so you don't have to wear a mascara. Okay. And so I just thought, you know, I already have my hair extensions, so I really want to add another. And so I just use mascara. I mean, and and you can overdo it with the lash extensions so easily. I just don't know if I want someone fucking with my eyes like that, like being that close to my eyes for that long. Well, they, they like move the lid so that it's not on, you know, they like, I don't know what they do, but they're, they do it with the precision of surgeons. Like, but still I agree. Like I'm not, it was one giddy treatment that I was willing to let go. I have to say like the whole eyes thing, it's just why I started wearing glasses. And it was really, it was a very conscious vanity choice. I mean, I've always needed contacts and I I didn't get LASIK or whatever. And there was a certain point where I was like, you know what? My eyelids are going, this fucking eyelash thing. I'm just going to start wearing glasses all the time to just avoid this whole, this whole shit. Yeah. Um, Okay. I'd love to hear about the beginning of Lucky. Where did the concept come from? How was it pitched? What was it like in the office that first year? Who interviewed and hired writers and staff? Many questions. Okay. I will try to remember all those questions. 
lucky. The idea for a magazine about shopping came from James Truman, who was my boss at the time. And I got a phone call from Condé Nast H&R asking me to come in, H&R, Condé Nast HR, asking me to come in and talk to James Truman about an idea he had. And I, you know, at the time I was just like a scrubby freelancer. I'd had some good jobs, but I didn't, you know, know what I was going to be doing sitting in a room with James Truman talking about an idea. And I went to his office. We talked for a while. He asked me who I thought did shopping well. And I told him, but I said, I really think the magazines that do it best are from Japan. And he was like, that's awesome. And pointed to a huge pile of Japanese shopping magazines on his desk. So we were like, we both thought the same way about what that magazine should be. You know, when I met him for the first time, that it should right. be egalitarian, that it should be everything and it should be available, that it should, you know, scratch a different itch than most fashion magazines. Oh, wow. And I got hired for the summer, basically, for three months. I got hired to come up with some dummy pages, to mm-hmm. hire some freelancers and come up with dummy pages. After we did that, there was a year end, I mean, a summer end meeting after Labor Day with all the big bosses in the building. Mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. show them because none of them had seen what I was working on. And somehow we got approved to do a test issue based on that. And then the test issue did all right. And so then they decided to launch. But okay. this whole time, which was about you know a nine-month period, I didn't know if I was going to be like back at home in a few weeks or sitting in a corner office in Condé Nast. And it just worked out. Wow. You know, the first year was fun and scary and intense and everything else you can imagine. Hmm. How did you choose people? How did you choose who would work there? Um, hiring people was hard. Mm-hmm. It was really hard. I mean, there were some people like we got really lucky with Jean Godfrey June, who had left the beauty editing and gone to the internet, like a lot of people did in the late '90s, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And then you know all that stuff busted, so she was ready to come back, and she was like the only person on staff who was already at that senior level when we hired her. Everybody else, like the jobs were a little bit of a reach for them, you know, but we were looking for people who didn't care about what the it bag was, who understood that, you know, you could find a pair of shoes at Payless that might look as good as Manolo Blahniks. If, you know, it's a basic black pump, you should always buy like the Payless one and not the Manolo Blahniks should be like the one that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we looked for people who kind of understood our shorthand about it. I would say. And, you know, sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't, you know, there was a lot of turnaround at the beginning. And how did you decide to put like real women in the magazine? Cause I think that that was so smart and it really, I'm not real women, but not that all women aren't real, but you know, like everyday women, non-models. Everyday women. Yeah. Non-models. That was because that was the Japanese magazines did that too. Okay. You know, and so did, you know, other people around the edges. Like there were street style photographers who, you know, we were impressed by who, you know, were just taking pictures of women out in Soho on an afternoon, but they looked stylish in a way that was funner and more accessible. I mean, I, I really hate what street style has become now because it's become a clown show during fashion week. But there were photographers like Amy Arbus who, who took great street style. And so we, that was what inspired it a lot. Yeah. Was there anything that got totally fucked up in that first year? Totally fucked up. Or was there anything like, you know, the people would be like, oh my God, I can't believe. Well, when we put out our test issue, we did not put any products by Estee Lauder in it. 
like I was not aware yet that there's like a I was not as aware as I needed to be of the of what is basically a quid pro quo between magazine editors and the beauty companies. Okay. And we didn't have, you know, Jean was not on staff at that time or she would have figured it out. And we had products that were companies owned by Estee Lauder, but the Lauders are very, you know, territorial or very sentimental about the original brand, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. Estee Lauder. And I just didn't fucking know that you were supposed to do that. And um, that was a big fuck up. That was a big fuck up that we had to work very hard to make right. Was it a success? Did you know it was a success right out of the gate? It wasn't a success right out of the gate. It, it like wasn't. it was it was a little bit more of a gradual thing because Condé Nast didn't launch it in a big splashy way. You know, like Talk Magazine launched several months before Lucky. And that was a huge splashy launch that Hearst did with with Miramax, actually. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a mess. And I think they, you know, they were confident. They they gave me all the resources I needed. But I think they, you know, this was a risk for that company, for Condé Nast. It was a very different type of title. So it was kind of a quieter launch. And then slowly we would hear from small boutiques that, People were coming into the stores with the magazine and pointing to things and saying, do you have this thing? Then it started happening with bigger brands. Then it happens with DKNY. So we began to see the power of what Lucky was capable of doing, how it was capable of driving people into the stores for very specific purchases. But, you know, the big turning point was really 9-11. Wait, why? Because after 9-11, everybody's ad budgets just got cut to hell. And our publisher was able to very successfully say, like, if you're going to be in one magazine, don't you want to be in the magazine that people are 100% shopping from? Wow. Oh, okay. And at least on the business side, that was a big change. Um, Who came up with the stickers? I stole the idea for the stickers from the Bliss catalog. So smart. The stickers were so smart. The stickers were really cute. The stickers were like such a smart, it was the, it was so smart. It was like, of course, like why, why had nobody thought of that before? Was that like super, was that expensive from a production standpoint? Well, it ended up getting us in some problems with ASME because we had the stickers in the first couple issues, but they were prohibitively expensive. So they figured out that the only way to really pay for them was to have it be part of an ad. Okay. Okay. So then when it became part of an ad, we had a mini page, like a little mini thing on the page that said, this is how, you know, not that we needed to say how to use them because it was pretty self-explanatory, but there was a little mini layout and ASME, which is the magazine's American Society of Magazine Editors, who are like the police of the magazine world, said that we were mixing editorial and advertising. So it was a whole thing and we had to change how we did it. It wasn't that big a deal, but it just, it was one of the many times I got really pissed off because people, you know, would refer to Lucky as a catalog, Yep. you know, and I was very inspired by catalogs. You know, I thought yeah. catalogs were great. And I, I thought a magazine that looked more like a catalog was a good idea, but the idea that we were pushing somebody's products, which was the other implication of calling it a catalog was untrue. We were, we were pushing a lot of different products. Yeah. And the thing is, is like, imagine it's like so laughable. It's so pure and so earnest. Like imagine like now the line between like editorial and editorial, it's like, you know, like every single, like the the New York times has like basically wire cutter is like advertorial, you know, it's like every, and nobody, everybody's making money off of, off of editorial. Now it's like, it's, it's, it's not the same as there's no line anymore. It's crazy that you were called out for that. 
Oh. No, that was super ahead of its time. It really, it really was. Um, okay. Somebody wants to know about my socks from Japan, which I haven't told anybody about. There are something called Chups, C-H-U-P-S, and they are the best socks in the world and everyone should buy them. I have a question. This is not on the question list, but this is something I've been thinking about. And I'm wondering your answer to this. What do you do when somebody in your life has made bad work? And this is, by the way, this, this question is not for anybody on the, who listens to the podcast, because I actually have a friend who's like, are you talking about me? It's not, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not talking about you. I have a couple of situations in my life right now where there are people in my life who are, are making bad work. And I don't know what to do about it because if they ask me, I don't know what to say. What would you do in that situation? How do you give feedback to someone you love who's making something horrible who, that you could fix, but that they don't necessarily maybe want your advice? I think it depends a lot who the person is and what my relationship to them is. Okay. You know, because I think there are absolutely people you can say, like who I could say in my life right now, like this is not the best thing you've ever made. Oh, you know, yeah. But, who could but, take that? Who can take that advice? I don't know. You could take it. You could take it. You're very good at taking criticism. Yeah, I could take it. I'd cry, but I could take it. I mean, if somebody said to me, if I had slaved and slaved and slaved on, on a book and somebody said, mm, like, <laughs> I'd be really bummed out. But, but I think, you know, it depends on how much self-esteem the person you're talking to has or how good they are at keeping things in perspective. Right, right. You know? I mean, I've definitely had people, you know, be harsh about things I've worked on. Do you tell, but do you tell people, do you tell people? I try, no, I try to emphasize the positive. Yes. You know, I try to emphasize the positive, but it, it's hard. It's, it's a hard one, you know, because sometimes people don't even want the answer. They can't hear the answer. But the thing is, is like, you know, especially if it's something I've, I, I know something about, you know, website, whatever, uh, copy uh, in most forms. And I see it. I have such a hard time because I viscerally react to something. And I'm not talking about like, oh, this is stylistically different than what I would do. I'm talking about like bad. It's just bad. Right. And I viscerally I have a visceral reaction to that. And like, I'm almost like so sad when I see it, like, because I, I now know that I'm, I don't know how I'm going to overcome this when I'm talking to the person about their project without telling mm -hmm. them, but you can't tell them. I mean, my first book proposal, this was years ago, was when Alex and I had just started dating. And I was like, do you want to look at my book proposal? And he said, no. And I said, why? And he said, what will we do if I don't like it? Right. And it was, I was like, God, you're such a fucking asshole, but it's actually, <laughs> it was wise. It was kind of wise because what if he didn't like it? How would we deal with it? What if he thought it was a disaster? At that point, our relationship couldn't have handled that. Yeah. It's hard to imagine it even now. Okay. Um, one more, one more, and then okay. we'll get going. I was heartbroken that my last favorite local boutique has closed. It's where I went when I wanted to treat myself. It's just a curated shoe, apparel, jewelry store. What do we do now? Where do we go to find really good curated goods? I find I have this problem too. Yeah, I have this problem too. I mean, we were talking about it last night a little bit on, on that um, Zoom call, the holiday Patreon Zoom call that we did. Because I think that, you know, there aren't a lot of clothes that are aimed at women our age that are like wearable and fun. And the designers who do do that, like Eileen Fisher, get kind of raked over the coals for it. We, we, we hate them for it. You right. Know? Right. So it's tricky. I think it, it just, 
it takes a lot of like looking around. Are there any online places that you, that you have liked that you felt like are good resources? There is no one like online boutique, like a shop op for women our age. Okay. Like that's okay. what I would like. That's what, you know, that's what I think would be a really good, good idea to, yeah. to, for somebody to do, but nobody ever will because it's not sexy. Right. I mean, I don't know why it's not sexy. There's like, isn't it, aren't we like, aren't we like older ladies are the thing now? I mean, isn't even like Julia Fox being like older ladies, sexy, yes. you know, like <laughs> it's, it's cool to be old. I forget exactly what her TikTok quote was. Yeah, I remember. But, I remember. Yes. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I mean, you've had a couple of good boutiques that you like online, but it is hard to find a place that has everything you want. And then also on top of that isn't prohibitively expensive. I yes. feel like that's the, that's the sweet spot that nobody he's really found like there's no bird online no not anymore anymore i mean bird closed i can't believe bird closed but yeah i know god i loved bird i know bird was a wonderful store bird was a wonderful store that was just like hi brooklyn lady walk in here walk out with your <laughs> uniform right it's true it was like it was just like and they were struggling <laughs> but she was even more specific jen mankins the owner of bird, yes because it was like the park slope bird was yes park slopey and the Williamsburg one was kind of edgy and the yes. Cobble Hill one was somewhere in between the two of those. Yes, it's true. It's true. I remember I went, I, I went in there when that place had just started, when it was deep in Park Slope. And I remember like she was maybe sewing clothes or somebody was like, it was much craft, like much more like I made this myself. Yeah. And I, I still, there's a pair of red corduroy pants that I did not buy from there that I'm still sad about mm. um, that like probably would have fallen apart in a week as some of those things do. Yeah. Okay. Listen, I have this excellent interview with Beth, Beth Pickens, all about creativity and creativity is a bomb and not a weapon. So happy new year again, everybody. And um, please listen to this interview and we'll be back next week. My guest today, because Kim is away, is Beth Pickens. Beth is an author, an advocate, and a consultant to artists with a master's degree in psychology and more than a decade's experience supporting artists and arts organizations. Beth has written two books for artists and creative people. The second is Make Your Art No Matter What, and the first one was Your Art Will Save Your Life. Beth is also the founder of a monthly subscription-based support group for artists called Homework Club, which I highly recommend, and is also one of the wisest people I know about art and also about life. Welcome, Beth. Hi. Oh my God. I'm just glowing with that introduction. To be called wise in this day and age is a miracle. You're incredibly wise. In, like it's, it's, un, it's unstoppable. Your wisdom is unstoppable, I find. <laughs> I thought you were going to say unsettling, and I was like, yes. Yes, that's what it is. It's unsettling. <laughs> well, sometimes, sometimes to us less wise, it is a little unsettling. But um, I, <laughs> so we are actually. When I first suggested talking to you this week while Kim was away, you told me it would have to be at night because you're so booked with clients during the day, and so we're actually talking at night. So my question is: Does everyone freak out at the beginning of the year? Uh, yes, they freak out really intensely in December. December is when okay. people are um, on the downswing of freak out. And I would say January is the upswing of freak out. It's sort of like a depressive okay. freak out into an anxious freak out. It sort of like bottoms out and then changes direction. Okay. And what are, what are, what are we all freaking out about? What are all creative people freaking out about right now? 
Well, I think this, the artificial Gregorian New Year, it suggests a kind of unstoppable passage of time, reminds people of mortality, but in this canned Hallmark way, because it's like a group collective holiday. Um, and that makes people feel like I'm not enough. I don't do enough. I don't have enough. And I don't like that, which is why I don't, this is not my new year. I have many other new years. I don't pay attention to January yeah. 1 as the new year because I think it really puts in people, I'm not enough. I don't do it. I, I don't have enough, do enough, and I'm not enough. And that is not to me what a new year vibe should be. And also just the pressure, the pressure of like, well, what's going to happen this year? How am I going to achieve more? What? How am I going to be better? Self-improvement, new yeah. year, new me, right? Like I felt it so much. Yeah. It's just a capitalist project I reject. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So a lot of people listening to this show, speaking of capitalist projects, are like, okay, I am X age, oh my God, and I want to do something creative with my one wild and precious life. How do you suggest people get started with the creative work that they're burning to create? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The answer is gently and simply. And you don't need to be different or have something that you don't currently have you just start slowly building a habit of showing up, protecting time for whatever it is in small increments. 15 to 20 minutes is fine. It's sort of exposing yourself to a habit, saying no to something so you can say yes to this, whether that's saying no to scrolling Instagram or um, watching TV or doing a thing that isn't as important to you, just saying no to something for a short period of time in order to say yes to this other thing. Whatever you feed will grow. But how do we keep the paying work that may be less nourishing from eating up all of the time of the creative work that we feel like will be more nourishing? Mm, yeah. This is the central mathematical equation of every artist and creative professional's life. How do I take care of myself financially while having the kind of life I desire, including the implementing all the creative projects and practices that I need to in this lifetime? It's a challenge for everyone, no matter how much or little money they have access to, no matter how much work they do for money or don't do. But one thing I would say is really understanding your paid job or jobs, their primary function in your life is to pay you. That's it. You do not owe anything to any institution. It will not protect you. You are expendable no matter where you work, unless you work for yourself, and that's not possible for everyone. But the primary role of a paid job is money. And that's really important. We need money. So that's a super massive import. That's huge. Limit the function of that job in your life to that thing. And begin to look for the other things that you might be trying to get from the paying work from other parts of your life. For example, friendship, for example, meaning, for example, creative expression, for example, a sense of community and connectedness. I highly recommend that people look for those things outside of their paying job and keep its primary purpose kind of central. This pays me. And that's really important. And now your creative projects, which may or may not be monetized now or ever, they are going to give you things that your paying job can never give you. So the paying job, crucial. You got to have money. But the creative practice that's going to help you feel as though you are living your life that you are meant to live and fill you spiritually and make you feel right in the world and connected, that is something money can't buy. And I'm a Capricorn. I want you to have all the money. I want you to have so much money. I care a lot about money. But it's sort of separating out where, what gives what where. 
So boundaries with whatever the paying job is. And a first boundary is accepting like, this is for money. That is why I do this thing. And that's so important. I'm really grateful that I get paid. Now over here, I'm going to get a lot of other really important rewards that I just listed. Yes. And I, oh yes, everything you said, everything you said is so smart. I, I think that there's a couple other things I want to, I want to add to it and talk about in it, because I think that there, there's another thing we're looking for from the paid work, which is a problem is we're working out our, some of our toxic habits in the work, which makes the work oh, like all consuming sometimes instead of figuring out like, I know so many people just have a talk and I myself too, for the work I don't like, just having a toxic relationship with it so that it actually takes up, it subsumes my life, you know, or looking mm-hmm. for validation in the paid work, which who gives a shit? They're just there to pay you, like looking for a pat on the head that I'm never going to get. So I just, I, that's what it sparked for me when you said that, because I think that a lot of times work takes up the paid work takes up more time because it, there's a, there's a toxic push pull in it right we haven't accepted its place in our life if that makes sense mm-hmm. yeah and it, it's complicated so for the people who are listening that are identifying with being an artist being a creative person you are a kind of person that has two careers and like i don't go to work when i'm done with work all of my clients do. When they're done with their paid work, then they go to work and they work on their creative lives and their projects that they need to do. So it's very difficult in this lifetime to have two careers going at the same time and then add like a family or care that you have to provide. But it's I think it's really important for... So the artists I work with, for example, who have not just paying jobs, but jobby jobs that are very career oriented, whether or not they identify mm-hmm. with it that way, professors come to mind. We talk all the time about how to limit one's relationship to that job, to have a lot of boundaries, to learn to detach, to learn to do it imperfectly, and to begin to think, how can I give my paid job 90% instead of 110 What would it be like to let something go? What would it be like to practice anti-perfection to um, sort of what would happen if this job takes up a little bit less psychic space? And you're bringing up a really good point. A lot of people who are working paid jobs are working in and among other people. And a workplace and people you work with follows group psychology, which is people plus time equals family dynamics and conflict. And so all of our stuff gets activated at work because these are the people you spend more time with than your own loved ones, which is bonkers, batshit. That's that's the social contract we've agreed to as laborers in the United States. (laughs) Right, right. Okay, so so that's 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 one big piece of this puzzle, right? Is figuring out how to how to find how to find time for the work, how to create a, a practice. Say you have the time, but you just are stuck. You're just afraid. Mm-hmm. How do we move through fear? How do we get unstuck? How do we start? Yeah. So for the person who says, Okay, I have time protected, I've jealously guarded this time, but I get there and I freeze or I don't know what's the right thing to do, and I get kind of paralysis there, I think that's when you turn to a different person to tell you what to do. For example, being in sort of an intensive class experience over a number of weeks or months, or asking another artist friend to tell you every day, here's your assignment, go do this thing. But where you don't have to rely on your own willpower to create the architecture of what are you doing, you're just responding to something. And that helps sort of loosen up and take the pressure off of the time. Because at the beginning of establishing a creative practice, 
and then returning to it as life takes you out of it. It's just returning to a habit. And anytime we return to a habit that we want and we believe is good for us, but we have so much resistance, whether it's for our body or other parts of our lives, at first, it's just kind of forcing ourselves to show up over and over and over again, and then there becomes ease. So in those early days where you're simply establishing the habit, exposing yourself to the idea of, okay, three times this week, I'm just going to show up for a creative practice. That requires so much will that I think it's useful not to re- not to use your own self-will to decide what are you doing during that time, but allow someone else to tell you. You're just responding to a prompt. I, I find it hard sometimes to find the other artists in my life to, to create that artistic community. I've found that, and I know other people struggle with that. How do we start to build artistic community for ourselves so that so we can build this sort of infrastructure in our life and start moving toward where forward to where we want to be. Well, in the spirit of capitalism, I would tell everybody to join Homework Club, which is my artistic service platform. And I will put you in a four-person, four-artist accountability pod, and you will have three new artist friends right there. But beyond that, you just start with whatever is easiest. What is the lowest hanging fruit of creative people who you already have access to? So for you as a writer, for example, I think like on the days when you, your current book is already, have you already finished that manuscript? Revisions. You're still uh, and endless revisions. revisions. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So when that book is done and you're sort of like, okay, I'm returning to a creative practice and I'm like, oh shit, I don't know what to do next. I would say like, what is a right, who is the easiest access writer in your life? And you would just right. literally text them and say, I'm going to write a few times this week and I don't know what to do. Will you just give me a prompt? Just that simple. Who is the easiest access person around you? Because creative yeah. community is the biggest resource in an artist's life. The other artists you know who you're moving through life with, they have collectively with you all the answers and resources for every problem that will come up. And and getting unstuck is definitely one of them. You just let another artist, an artist will tell you in a second, oh, go do this thing. Go write about this. Here's your assignment. Mm -hmm. Go do it. So how you build that is look around you. Who are the easiest access people in your life? Who are the artists that are closest to you? And if you can think of no one, you ask your friends, like, what are artists or writers in your life? I need to be introduced to some people. I need to have, I need to build out this part of my life because it is crucial. And it's yeah, worth the yeah, investment. I agree. I agree. I agree. And by the way, also Homework Club is great. And I was in the beginning of my last book in an accountability group and it did help. So FYI. Amazing. Um, I'm so glad to hear that. Uh, <laughs> we did. Let's take a quick break from some ads. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for 
for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Support for Everything is Fine comes from Ritual. So I love Ritual. Everyone knows I love Ritual. I talk about Ritual all the time. I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin. And I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. But the thing I love most about Ritual is their Hyacera. It's a once daily skin supplement that's clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. In a clinical study, Hyacera led to 3.6 times reduction in crow's feet wrinkles within 90 days as compared to a placebo. Hyacera led to 2.9 times increase in skin smoothness within 90 days as compared to a placebo. You can enhance your skincare routine from the inside out with one daily capsule, essenced with soothing vanilla. I love Hyacera. It's been rigorously tested and validated. It's one of the industry-leading sustainability. It, it meets, sorry, all of the industry-leading sustainability standards. You know I'm a beauty editor now. I am all about keeping my face plump, and Hyacera absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long, and I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks more juicy, I guess, is the best way to do it. Say it, do it. Uh, okay, so you can start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash fine. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription to get today. That's ritual.com slash fine for 25% off. And we're back. Now we're getting, we're, we're getting unstuck. We're, we're figuring out what the daily practice will be. We have the time carved out. What about just fear, feelings of worthlessness, feelings of, I can't do it, feelings of, you know, I'm not any good. Why would anybody want to see this? The whole thing that comes up. Right. What do you do with just the script that plays in the background all the time in our brains? Yeah. I think the first thing is just acceptance that you're just thinking that because you're human and every other human who's doing a creative project encounters the same thoughts. Right. It just is the sign you're a healthy person. You're just having all the normal self-doubt and fears that all people have. So acceptance, rather than doing the second arrow of I'm thinking this bad thing about myself and I think I'm a bad person for even thinking it, but just like, oh, there it is. There's the fear. Know that every other human, I've been told, every other human has it too. Normalize and accepting, this is mine. Acceptance right. is first. Awareness and acceptance. Then taking contrary action. So once we identify there's a, there's a fear-based narrative playing and it's really loud, a helpful prompt is what would be a contrary action to what the script is telling me? So if the script is telling you, this is not worth your time and you should just stop now, then you would do the opposite thing. You would keep going. You would say, okay, I hear you. I hear you fear. I'm just going to keep going anyway. How do we set 
a realistic goal for ourselves. Like I want to, I will tell you, I want to write a novel this year. I have decided that when I'm finished with the revisions of this book, I want to write a novel. That's what I'm going to do next. I've always wanted to do it. I'm going to figure out the time around it. It's, I'm, it's what I'm going to do. Um, I'm pretty good at this, at setting goals. Like I like it. It really, I really kind of get off on it, but how, for people who aren't good about that. And even for me, like setting a pacing myself out for it so that it's a realistic time frame. How do you talk mm-hmm. to artists and creators about whatever their goal is? You know, I want to create a, a, you know, a musical this year, whatever it is. We all, we all have like many right. of us have creative dreams. Yeah. Especially for big projects that are, um, they're going to be a long period of time. I think one is breaking it up into smaller goals that you reach along the way. So if the ultimate yeah. goal is I'm going to write my first novel, then the first is you're going to get 50 pages of that novel done. And that's going to be right. huge because at 50 pages, then we have a plan of we celebrate, we have a ritual around it, and you show that to some people. Not for feedback, but just for people to go, here's what I love, keep going. Right, right. So it's sort of like breaking it up into stages, into phases, and mm-hmm. Thinking of how can your creative practice, how can your project be a balm and not a weapon? What if you try not to weaponize it or notice when you're weaponizing it, when you're using it as evidence that you're not enough or good enough? What if it is a thing that you can retreat to? So that's what we mean by weapon. Yes. Weaponizing the practice. When an artist weaponizes their practice, it means they are, there's a lot of shoulds. Like I should be doing more. I should be somewhere else in my practice. I should have done this by now. It's sort of like using this gift that they have of being an artist as a way to punish themselves over and over and over again and just compile evidence that they're not enough. But if we shift it into how can your practice and your project be a balm? So this novel that you're going to get inside of, how can that be a balm? How can that be sort of a spiritual retreat that you're going to? Not that it won't be hard. You're about to go get lost in a world of your own creation. And you get to do that. That's so special that you're going to go retreat into this world. And it will be hard. And you're going to be a part of this group of people who write novels in their lifetime. How can it shift? How can we keep nudging the practice and the projects over to this is a balm? This is something I'm doing for myself, not just to myself. And when that doesn't work, when a person's like, I just can't get there, (laughs) then I want you to imagine the future audience. Like you think about your readers of this novel. You think about all the novels you've read that have made you so hungry to write a novel yourself. And remember, all those novelists hated themselves and their books while they were writing them. It is very difficult to sit with a book. And they kept doing it. And the outcome was then you got to read it and have a transformative experience. Your readers are going to have the same thing if you're willing to keep going and help it get out of you and into the world. It's service. Right. 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 And and that's the way to think about art in general, no matter what it is. No matter if you're if you're mm-hmm. picking up painting for the first time, whatever it is, you know, I, I often threaten to become to get a loom. I'm I often, I'm just like, you know, I just wanna I just wanna create things. I want them to be big and I just mm-hmm. wanna make them, you know? And it's yeah, and that it is it's a service to yourself too, right? I mean yep. when yes. you really first are and able foremost, to be free. Well, giving yourself this thing, even though your brain's telling you not to, and the whole world will tell you not to, the world will only pull you away from your practice. You will find reasons not to do it, and the world will encourage you not to do it. That's just being alive and navigating modernity. 
But by showing up for any creative practice, regardless of outcome, there doesn't have to be an output. But showing up for this thing, it strengthens your self sense of self. It is showing you that you value your life and time and who you are, and it takes care of you. Then when you make things and decide to share them and put them out into the world, it takes care of other people. So making work and sharing it, putting it out into the world is a huge service. And I think sometimes when an artist can't locate that sense of I'm doing this for myself, if when that feels like not enough, I'll encourage them to think about all the people that your work is going to impact. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so do you think, do you think daily, a daily practice, like you think, do you think a daily practice? Nah. Is that what you tell people? No, no, no. Okay. No, no. Okay. you don't have to do no. anything daily except, you know, drink water, floss your teeth and eat something. That's the only <laughs> thing you have to do every day. <laughs> there is no pressure to do something daily. I think daily for some people that really works. And it's a, a deep part of their kind of spiritual being is having daily creative practices. Yeah. And for other people, that's very quickly weaponized. I don't think you have to make anything daily. In fact, for the artists I work with, I ask them to pick one day a week where they're not doing any work for money and they're not doing any creative work. I ask all my clients to have a Shabbat, no matter what day of the week that is. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's amazing because that absolutely can be weaponized. At the beginning of every year, you you say to yourself, you know, or we all say to ourselves, okay, well now every day I'm going to wake up at 6 a.m. and I'm going to write or 5 a.m. I'm going to write for two hours or I'm going to paint or I'm going to draw or whatever it is. And then in week three, you haven't. And then you're just like, I suck, you know? Right. right. Setting ourselves up for failure. I don't think anything yeah. has to be daily, truly, or daily, again, as a balm, not a weapon. But so when yeah. my clients are feeling particularly stuck or far away from a practice, I tell them to think about wading back into water. You're just going to walk slowly back into the water of whatever the work is. And you only have to expose yourself to it for a short period of time with some relative f- frequency. So at the very beginning, it's just maybe just once per week for a month, you're going to spend 20 to 30 minutes inside of a practice or project. You're just kind of exposing yourself to this habit. It's like when you're warming up to exercise or do any kind of movement, you're telling your body, okay, we're going to do this thing. Don't freak out. We're going to start doing this thing. Same thing with wading back into the water of a creative practice. So with books, for example, anytime I have a writer who's been very far away from their book, the first thing I ask them to do is just reread it. Don't edit, don't write anything, just read it for 20 minutes and then put it down and walk away. Yeah, no, that's such a good, that's such a good idea because you need to get recommitted. You need to get reacclimated to it. It takes a, like, I haven't looked at my book, to be honest, in several weeks and it it's going to take, I already know that it's going to take me a minute to get into it. And I, I know from experience to be gentle with myself in those first couple of days, because it's just, it, I need to re- get back in sync with it. You know, I'm not there yet. And that's yeah. just, that's just natural yeah. part of it. You have to turn the lights back on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you're always really good about digital health and thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> or so it, it would our, appear on the internet. Or so it would, exactly. <laughs> the, the internet tells me that you are very good about. <laughs> How how do you, so I and I I know some of this because I follow you but how do you think about 
you know, carving out space for things that matter, creating a healthy relationship with social media. And I know some of this because mm-hmm. I've also the second time you've been on the show, but I want to talk about it because it's an important thing at the beginning of the year to like, I just cleaned out my social media. You know, I, cl- I stopped following like a thousand accounts. Cause I was like, what am I doing? I don't need to watch children right. of celebrities, you know, <laughs> like, <this is> ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I was really enjoying Some it. For you a might know. There might be a- <laughs> exactly. Like Sh- Shiloh, really. I was like, Oh, Shiloh looks different now, but anyway. Okay. Damn. I didn't How know Shiloh was on social media. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It's okay. So how do you, how do you think about it? And how do you tell people to think about it? Social media? First, being really honest about what it is, which is corporate platforms that are there to make money off of us. They are designed to be addictive. They are designed to make you buy things. Just remembering these are not, there is no egalitarian internet experience. They are all corporations and corporations are there to make money and exploit. It's a, it's a marketing tool. That's really useful. So how to keep it in the realm of this is fun, this is useful, this is connective. Keeping social media time to this is what it's useful for and then noticing when it turns. And it will always turn every time you're on it for me too. It's designed to be addictive. It's like how to have a healthy relationship to cigarettes. Not really possible. And yet if you're going to smoke, we can talk about harm reduction, (laughs) right? So with social media and artists... This is there. It's a very important marketing tool. It's a very important sort of resource gathering tool. And the trouble is how to kind of stay in the 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 part of the continuum where this is useful. This is helping me. I'm having fun, and then noticing when it's slipping into I am comparing and despairing, and I hate myself, and I'll never do anything ever again. Which happens. The thing is, it happens so quickly when yeah. you're in there. I think the a, a few strategies that are helpful with social media. One is to decide what platform or platforms are you using as an artist? What do you want to get from it as an artist? And you actually consider that the time you're sort of feeding the beast of social media on behalf of you as an artist, it's part of the business marketing side of your practice. Go do it and then get the hell out of there. Another thing that I think is really useful is fasting from it. So I personally take... June and November off of Instagram. And that's the only social media I use. I only use Instagram and I have one professional account. I don't even have a Finsta. So June and November, my personal preferences, because June is Pride Month and that's nobody wants to be on, no queer person wants to be on social media, in my opinion, during (laughs) Pride Month. And then November with American Thanksgiving and the onslaught of the shopping season, another great time to be out of there. So that's when I take a month off and have kind of mm-hmm. the bliss at, at, just notice at first like that sort of like guttural reaching for my phone and then remembering oh that thing's not there so what do i want to do yeah. instead maybe it's a different app on my phone or maybe it's not on my phone at all but keeping remembering number 1 again it's a corporation it's there to make money it's not your friend they will erase right. your account it's happened to so many of my clients with no warning it doesn't belong to you it belongs to the corporation right. number 2 it's good marketing. Use it for what it's good for and then get out of there. And number three, take concentrated times off. Even if it's 24 hours a week of just deleting it off your phone and having one yep. day of a break from it. Yep. But that yep. can be that can be miraculous, just one day off of it. 
Yeah, just to change the habit. It's just about the habits, right? That's it. Because I I take it off and put it back on all week. Like if I feel like I'm making that flip into it being toxic, I'll take it off for two days and then be like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to ease back in. You know, because it, it's it it is that compare and despair. As soon as I start hating someone, when I'm just like, ew, look at them on that fucking vacation, then I know I have to get away. <laughs> then it has to. I have my to be thing done. is. As soon as I notice people who are watching my stuff that are my actual friends, but I haven't talked to, then I'm like, okay, get off the internet. And like, maybe I'll text that friend. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, So what else is on your mind right now? What are you hoping for in 2023? (laughs) I'm about to go on my first ever writing retreat. And um, I've hosted, I used to help run a queer artist writing retreat in um, Acumal, Mexico for a number of years, but I've never participated in one as a writer. So I'm going to go have that experience in the wintry solitude of, of Minnesota's Franconia Sculpture Garden. And I'm really curious what will happen. Um, I have not had this much time off of seeing clients. I'll be off for two and a half weeks since 2019. And for anybody wow. who works in any helping professions, all people who do client-based work, our brains were scrambled and reorganized from doing work for the past three years during the pandemic. And I don't even know how. So it will be very interesting to just have a little span of time where I'm not seeing clients all day to see what's going on in my head. Yeah. That I'm very interested in to encounter my interior in a different way. <laughs> And it will be over my birthday. So it's like an epic birthday present to myself too. Wow. And are you, do you have rules for yourself? I'm, I'm Since you coach so many artists, you have rules for yourself going into this writing retreat? Like how, how are you going to approach it? Because I've done them and it's, it can be, it can be intimidating and scary that like first day when you're like, what do I do here? Yeah. <laughs> like, I've worked with a lot of artists who have a lot of anxiety before. And then when they arrive at a residency or a retreat. And so I've given a lot of information and advice that now I have to actually employ. And so one of the things is not to have huge expectations of what I get done, to have a shape to the time, but not rigidity to a schedule, but a shape. So the day has all of these things in it. And I am going to, I think I'm going to have kind of a gentle rule for myself that I'm not interacting with anybody through phone or internet until the afternoon. So the morning time, which is when my brain is sort of its sharpest and most interesting, that belongs just to me for however I want to use it. And then I can check email or text messages or see what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And also knowing that the whole, every part of the experience is part of the work, like sleeping in a time when you wouldn't normally sleep is part of the, like that was something I really found in, because I went away for a month and I really found that every part of it informed me because I was in a different environment. Everything I did informed my, my project, even if it didn't seem like it was the, the dreams I had in an afternoon nap informed my project six months later when, you know, unexpectedly. So it's just like, it doesn't have to be this idea of what it is. You know, when we give ourselves this like big amounts of time, it's such a gift, but you can choke it so much that it's- Oh, absolutely. See the gift, right? Absolutely. We can feel like I've already wasted it and it hasn't even started yet. And like you said, so often the real fruits of any kind of residency or retreat happen later. So I might go there and predominantly what I do is read. I might just read a lot. 
Yeah. And that could be, that will be enough. Because <laughs> the great thing yeah. is, I won't be able to do anything. It's too cold. I will just yeah, be that's, inside. No. Yeah, I went to Iceland for the same reason. I was just like, all right, well, here we go. Here's me and my portable humidifier just like traveling around. (laughs) Um, Beth, it's so good to talk to you. Thank you so much for doing this with me at nighttime and happy new year. It is a privilege and a pleasure. Happy New Year. Happy Capricorn season, my power season. Happy Capricorn. Happy, happy, happy this fake New Year. But yes, happy Capricorn. And good luck on your writing retreat. I can't wait to read whatever comes out of this or whatever you write next. Thank you so much. It's so good to see you. And where can people find you, Beth? Yes. My website is bethpickens.com. And my professional Instagram that I'm on 10 months out of the year is Beth Pickens Consulting. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Everything is Fine. We're your hosts. I'm Jen Romolini. And I'm Kim France. If you like the show, please rate and review it on all the platforms. It really makes a difference, especially Apple Podcasts. If you want to support the production of the show, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com backslash everything is fine. We put best of lists there. We do live events there. We do lots of things. You can follow the show on Instagram at EIF Podcast. We have a robust and private Facebook group. You can email us at everything is fine, the podcast at gmail.com. You can find Kim on her blog, girlsofacertainage.com. You can find me on tinyletter.com backslash Jennifer Romolini. The show is mixed and edited by the great Natalie Rivera. Thank you, Natalie. And we'll talk next week. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com.